I have a dear friend of mine who should be in the area, Dr. John Ray, a young man. If you people read The Remnant, you will know he will have a serialized four-part thing called The Heresy of Americanism. Now, Rayo was supposed to come here and meet me. We were supposed to interview Malcolm Muggridge together three days ago, and he was supposed to have brought 50 copies of his brilliant article. It's about 50 pages. But when that article finally comes, I urge some of you to get it. And if Rayo's ever in the area, I urge you to, to meet him. He has his doctorate from Oxford in church history. He's only 33 years old, a brilliant scholar. And Rayo will show you how America was just a stepchild of the church. We, we had a good colonial country, a good mission church, and we had plenty of faith in America. I'm not ridiculing that. But we had this wretched idea that we Americans, with our democracy, our frontier, our freedom, we know something Rome doesn't know, and England doesn't know, and France doesn't know, and you've got to believe in this pluralism, that we have our own version of the faith. <clears throat> now, a hundred years ago, this was quite polite, at least, and when Rome shook its finger at us, we obeyed. But this very Americanism now has infected all the national hierarchies with pluralism. We have the church in Holland, and it has insights which Poland could never understand. And so to the church in France, and the, the church in England, and the church in America. So pluralism is trotted out. Now, if you finally show them that pluralism is acceptable on a cultural level, that we Americans eat frankfurters, and as Michael says, ham, McDonald hamburgers, and you people have your tea and comfort. Okay. We dress one way, you dress another way. That's okay. I have one way of speaking English, and you have the crazy way of speaking English. Okay. Well, what do you mean? When it comes to fornication, you mean uh, thou shalt not sleep with your boyfriend in England, but thou, thou mayest sleep with your boyfriend in America. What does this mean? That if you take a jet flight, ethics change? The real presence change depending on what country you're in? That's nonsense. So when you finally get that determined, and that means you are part of the remnant of a remnant, you know what the final answer is? You're judgmental. You're unchallenged. Who are you? How do you know about all this? So they treat you as if you are some pariah because you are so firm in defending the Catholic faith. And you should see how many times my dear friend Davies has been jumped upon. Not that he's wrong. He's judgmental. And he's uncharitable and so on. I probably have been jumped upon that much too, but it doesn't bother me. I just want to be right, and I hope I'm right, in charity. I mean, I hope I don't get bitter. I am bitter about issues, but I hope I can treat my opponent in a charitable way. Now, what should our response be to this? First of all, I say, we know, we know that the truths of faith and morals, those in the Penny Catechism, those found in, in the... Apostles' Creed in a very primitive way, then the Nicene Creed, and then in Pope Paul's Credo of the people of God. These truths can never change. We know that only to the universal church, with Peter as its head, is truth infallibly guaranteed. That's extremely important today. It's extremely important to know that I don't care how prestigious a theologian is, a parish priest is, a professor is, a bishop is, a national hierarchy is, 
and, and some of them are very well educated. They probably have better education than certain dumb Polacks and dumb Italians. There's no doubt about it. Many popes were kind of peasant popes. They got one degree. Whereas we have people from Oxford and, 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 and Notre Dame. How, how educated can you get? And they've gone to workshops and all that. But we say, nevertheless, nevertheless, truth about faith and morals, I'm not speaking about, about philology or anything else, but when it comes to faith and morals, truth is infallibly guaranteed only to the universal church with peace. That is the bottom line. And to the extent that anyone else disagrees with the universal church, that person is not guaranteed to be right. And is wrong when he contradicts it. So give me the most eminent archbishop in England or cardinal in, Rome, in Holland or whatever. If he contradicts Rome on faith and morals, he's wrong. And that is our Catholic faith. So we little people, some people here are well educated, some people are not. But we know our faith. Any peasant from Ireland or France or Italy who has mumbled the mysteries of the rosary on his beads and who has studied the Penny Catechism and who has listened to the virgin birth in sermons and has read the gospel and knows about the resurrection, this man is rooted in the truth. And it makes no impression, it should make no impression on him what theologians or anyone says. He means to follow Jesus Christ in the truth not to follow some educated theologian leading him away from the truth with all of this uh, so-called intellectual. And by the way, if you ever study the modernists, they are not powerful intellectuals. They are shabby. They are embarrassments. When I read modernists like Teilhard de Chardin, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to be identified as I am a Catholic. And I am proud to be identified with any Mexican peasant who says the rosary. I am proud to be identified with Cardinal Newman, to my mind the greatest mind in the church since St. Augustine. But I'm not proud, I'm ashamed to be said, well, Mara is a Roman Catholic, so is Teilhard de Chardin, so is this modernist, this modernist, this biblical theorist. These people make me, me feel uh, embarrassed. They're so intellectually shabby. On the basis of some dubious German philosophical principle, they, de they, they suck out the truth of the revelation and their ethical principles, the situation ethics, which allows anything to be done provided it's done in love. This is a terrible error, rationally provable. So I'm in no way impressed by that. Here are some thoughts I have about the crisis. Sometimes you wonder if you are a parent, above all, desperately trying to keep your family together in religious truth. And you see it assaulted in, in the universe. You hear sermons and books and biblical explanations and so on. You hear these strange statements that Roman Catholics and Anglicans now agree on the priesthood, on the Eucharist, and, and on something else. You, and you're more and more demoralized, and you know where the truth stands. Your point is, does Rome know and does Rome care? Because here I am getting out on a limb. I say we're Roman Catholics, where Rome speaks, that is the truth. The Pope is the arbiter. But then you say, does he know and does he care? Because apparently these people keep getting promoted. Modernist priests are made bishops. Malcolm Muggeridge told me this. This is the first time I ever met the man. He's a 
wonderful man, a, a recent Catholic, he said when he was at the University of Edinburgh as rector, he was merely a rector, which is an honorary job, uh, people thought he would be there just as a figurehead, but he meant to be serious. And he noted that the undergraduates wanted contraceptive pills to be given out to all the girls, part of education, after all. So he wouldn't do it. He would not transmit the, 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 the request of the student body to the University Board of Governors, so he was violently denounced and he was forced to resign. He resigned. He would not do it. He said a few people came to his support. The most violent attack was from a priest, a Catholic priest, who was the chaplain at Edinburgh. And Margaret said facetiously, that man's going to be a bishop. And he was. That was his credentials. Attacking Humani Vitae and the church doctrine and contraception. So Margaret was in no way edified by that. So the big question is, does Rome know? Does Rome care? Now, I've been in the counter-reformation, the counter-revolution for about uh, 17 years. Dear Dietrich von Hildebrand instantly saw that things were going wrong when he read all this correspondence from the theologians. So already in 1964, he was warning me. And I, at that time, I was raising a family. I had no time for this. But for 10, 15 years, it seemed as Rome did not know, or knowing did not care. And that was very demoralizing, but I nevertheless said, I know where I stand. And I, at least I was in touch with von Hildebrand, and, and I began to read Michael and Hamish Fraser and a few other people. But finally, the good news is this. Rome did know, does know. But they're not that stupid in Italy. You don't even have to send them press cuttings that your, your favorite theologian said some stupidity. These theologians publish books. Teresa Kane, Sister Teresa Kane in America, thumbed her nose publicly at the Pope. He knows that. We don't have to send him any more cuttings. And the good news is simply this, that Rome, under this present Holy Father, Rome seems to be more inclined to act. Now, the Church is a huge organization. It's something like 700 million Catholics. And there's, there's a chain of command which is very unwieldy. If you've ever been in the military, you know that even if you're in a division with 15,000 men, by the time the general's order is mediated to the private, it goes through seven or eight chains of command, and there's always resistance and interpretation and everything else. So I always pictured the church as a monster ship on the ocean, and it's, it's chugging along at slow speed, but it has tremendous inertial force because of its huge mass. Now, if the church wants to stop or reverse itself, it throws the, the screw into reverse, and there's a shudder, but then it takes a long time to, to turn around. Now, the church, for the last 20 years externally, and since the modernists invaded us for the last 150 years internally, the church is divided against itself. But these last 15 years have been outrageous, and finally I hear the shudder. Finally, it's as if someone in the pilot's house has said enough, and they've shuttered it. Now, the, the boat still goes on as of its own momentum. Heretics are still appointed bishoprics. Journals are not suppressed, and so on. Father Curran is still a professor in good standing at Catholic U, despite the fact he's an abortionist. He attacks Humani Vitae in print. We don't have to tape record him silently. 
But I say that there are signs that Rome is getting concerned. It's probably a question of too little and too late in certain respects. Ultimately, they'll prevail. First, a few years ago, the Pope publicly apologized to Catholics for blasphemous liturgies. He rebuked, the Pope rebuked priests and bishops for scandalizing the faithful in the matter of liturgy. That's unprecedented, as Hamish Fraser said. It has never, never happened that the Bishop of Rome to the Universal Church, he said, in the name of my bishops, I ask your pardon, faithful members of the Church, for what we have inflicted on you in sacrilegious liturgy. That's, un that's unprecedented. Then Cardinal Ratzinger gave a talk in Paris about a year and a half ago in which he denounced catechetics in Paris. In Paris, the French are the hotbed of heresy. They've always gone their own way from Rome, yet they are simultaneously the eldest daughter of the church and they are the land which gave us St. Therese and the Curie of Ars and La Salette. And, and Lourdes and so on and, one, and they have a magnificent resistance movement in France which unfortunately becomes fragmented but Ratzinger in front of Cardinal Lustige or Lustige, I don't know how you pronounce his name this Polish convert from Judaism who is now a, the Cardinal Archbishop of Paris Ratzinger gave a very strong attack it makes me sound like a moderate I like that I like it when a Roman cardinal makes me sound like a martyr because I'm the extremist, Michael's an extremist, we're all extremists. But then I said, I showed that to a good priest. I said, wasn't it wonderful what Rossinger said? He said, Bill, I'm tired of speeches. All we get are beautiful speeches about truth, but no action. And he's right. We get wonderful speeches about what the truth is, but meanwhile, heretics are promoted. Well, we got action. Just a few weeks ago, Ratzinger forced an American archbishop, the notorious Garrity of Newark, my neighboring diocese, by the way, to remove his imprimatur from a catechism which had sold 1.6 million copies. It had corrupted the faith of, of a total 20 years of two generations of children, or one generation of children. Well, Ratzinger forced the publisher to remove the imprimatur. It was done, and the publisher's going to lose money now. Now, that's unprecedented. That it, and the second imprimatur has been removed by another notorious prelate, Archbishop Hunthouse, because he had put his imprimatur on a sex book, which said every stupidity going. So now you might say, well, that's, that's only a, a straw in the wind. I fully agree, but it should hearten us who have battled seemingly alone. We are the privates in the trenches, and it seems as if the generals are just sipping cocktails and once in a while issuing a communique, but meanwhile promoting people to be colonels who are the enemy. Well, apparently, they're blowing the whistle on this, and this is a great thing. <clears throat> also, you know, there's an investigation of seminaries. In my mind, if I were in Rome, I would not investigate the seminaries. I would close them. That would be the beginning of the real counter-reformation because almost every seminary, I know three possible exceptions, every seminary has heretics as professors, even the best ones. But the, one of the best ones I know, the ratio is 13 orthodox, three heretics, which is about the best ratio in the country. One of the heretics is in Scripture where he'll destroy the faith. Some of our seminaries, by the way, there are only about 20 students studying for the priesthood. They, they could hold 400. 
They have about 20 seminarians studying for the priesthood, 20 nuns studying for the priesthood, and about 15 women lay theologians. Very close. So if we, if we closed every seminary down, it would not make one difference. It would, it would make a positive difference. But Rome wants to go through the motions of investigating them, and one does not know how serious the investigation is. The bishop in charge of it is apparently a good man, but how free he is, one does not know. Meanwhile, however, this is the problem that should concern you. They're mostly laymen in this audience. Time is passing, and most of us will probably be dead before order is restored in the church. That we are in the worst crisis in the history of church, including the Aryan crisis. Don't tell me that this is just a little growing pains and that things will be better once we get a college, a parish council or some deep innovation like that. We are in the death grip. It is a tremendous crisis. Order will be restored and it will have to come from above. This is a hierarchical church. It might come from really above. It might come from above the above. I happen to believe in apparitions of the Blessed Virgin, certainly in Lourdes and Fatima. And I'm very open to other apparitions of the Blessed Virgin. And uh, I know one priest in, in America, he writes a column in the paper. He said, Lourdes, yes, Fatima, no. Lourdes is positive. And therefore, the Blessed Virgin is to be believed because she wants to help people. But Fatima, she's so negative. That couldn't come from God. And who is this Blessed Virgin saying there's so much sin in the world? So this man conveniently, first of all, tells us we need not believe either. He magnanimously consents to believe in Lord, but Fatima makes too negative. But I think Fatima is negative, and that's what tells me it's right. I mean, if Fatima said things are wonderful, then I say it couldn't be true. But Fatima says about communist uh, errors that it, uh, if Russia is converted, things will be fine. If Russia is not converted, is not consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, she will spread her errors throughout the world. And if anything has been fulfilled as a prophecy, as Hamish Fraser shows all the time, it's that. The atheism, the skepticism, the filth, the Marxism, the destruction of family life, these errors rooted in that atheistic communism have invaded everywhere and into our CCD kindergarten classes too. So I say that it may be in God's own time, in the Blessed Virgin's own time, it may be that all these dire things uh, prophesied and threatened against the human race may come through, and that might be the most painless way. See, I, by the way, don't think nuclear weapons are our greatest fear. I think they're part of the solution to the problem. We deserve nuclear weapons. With, with all this blasphemy and abortion and everything else, how, could God, how can God give us, if God cares for us, he will not let us be living fat and easy and simply protesting at peace rallies. As St. Augustine said, when Augustine was living it up and, and committing sin, he said, you never let me enjoy it. You loved me too much to let me enjoy it. So God loves us too much to allow us to continue the blasphemous living, to continue earning damnation, and to stand back. And I say it would be part of the mercy of God that whether by natural causes, human causes, or supernatural causes, a tremendous punishment visits the earth. It's what we deserve. It might wake us up.
But I'm afraid what's going to happen is even if we get a real good one, they'll simply make a TV show out of it, and one week later we'll wonder what's on next. I mean, that's how drugged we are to the purple. Mugwit, by the way, is as cynical as I about television. Even though we were televising something, he is almost in despair. He thinks the whole television mentality has destroyed the ability to think or to take reality seriously. He's probably right. <clears throat> but let's assume that things will go on slowly and that there is no supernatural intervention for the next 20 years, in which case I expect to go to my hope reward. That, uh, that That's what one can expect to live, to be 75. What do you do until the church is restored to order? And I'll give you a few sequences, and I hope to be finished in five minutes. The first thing we do is we keep the faith ourselves. We have all kinds of other problems, but let's keep the faith ourselves, and that means keep our homes Catholic. If need be, teach our children ourselves. I myself have four children. I live in the middle of the woods. I have four and a half acres in the middle of 70 acres. The first building you see is a Catholic church, a Catholic school, a Catholic convent. My children were going through the woods to the school. When my oldest was eight years old, I pulled him out. Started my own school, run by me with housewives teaching. We had to drive 16 miles each way. Rented a building in a Protestant uh, complex. And we saved the faith of our children. And my last child, my late wife, taught him totally. She, he never went to any school. She used to drive to the place for a while, but then she took up the instruction. So, and I, we took seriously, above all my wife, that the primary obligation is to the parents. Now, as, as Michael said this way, most parents are negligent. And in a way, it's a two-way street. In one sense, you don't blame them. It used to be possible to entrust your child to other people in church and state and to know they would not be violated. Their innocence would not be violated, their integrity would not be violated, and your trust would not be violated. So, and it was so easy. You, the wife stayed home, the husband made some money, the children were at school. Well, you better believe it. It's not always that way. Your children can be stolen from you in all kinds of situations. The worst place is the seminary. If you have a young man who wants to be a priest, send him to the typical seminary. He'll lose his vocation and his faith. And your youngsters are vulnerable to every sort of obnoxious stupidity and heresy and indecency in the so-called sex education. So we take seriously it's our baby. I look at the birth certificate. I'm the father. She's the mother. It's not big brother. It's not big holy brother. It's we. So the first thing is you teach them to yourself. It would have been nice to expect the school to do it. Don't count on it. Now, you probably have an exception here, but some of you are not from here. That's it. Work with others. You can't do it alone. If you're alone, for a while you'll be determined, but then you say, well, it's only I. Everyone else is enjoying the world, going to the beach, playing cricket, looking at the television. They're not alarmed. And their kids seem very neat and having a very good graduation party. It was a smashing party. You say, well, 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 I probably am different. But if you work with others, you'll confirm each other. And you should work with each other in patience and in loving concern. Uh, we who resist the enemy, we tend to be cranky ourselves and we start becoming hash hurts to each other. 
And that's a big problem, too. That's one proof of the divinity of the Catholic Church, by the way, and of the sacred character of serious religious orders. When you realize that most families can't stay together for 30 years, that you have a husband staying with a wife, you have children staying with the mother and father for 30 years, is a miracle today. Everybody's off in his own apartment because we're hashers to each other. Do you realize the Benedictines are a thousand years old? More than that. The church is almost 2,000 years old. The church has this divine principle whereby taking human nature with its hash shirt tendencies, with its always its fault, and the church welds us into a unity. So we should try to, try in our little movements, we have not the charism of the church. But if we try to improve our own private lives so that we're not such a hasher to our colleague, we can work together in charity and, and having a little humor, a little sense of humor, not to be so grim. Our side tends to be so grim and, and they're always this way. Just relax a little bit and have this Christian joy which should be ours. You should stay informed. This is to me the reason this is my second tour of England. I was here in the UK. I'll be up in Scotland too. <coughs> I was here three years ago. And the one message I have, this is a small island. As you might not know it, but I come from America where we got Texas, and we could put you in Texas. That's what the Texans say, anyhow. But even though it's small and you have 50 million people, 3 or 4 million Catholics, you don't know each other. You don't know what's going on. You absolutely have to stay informed, and that's one of the reasons for the speaking tour, that already I'm a kind of... Uh, unifier because I'll go from here to here to here to here and people even having heard I've been somewhere else think of me as a traveling reporter which is good but I only come here once in a while you should stay informed by reading certain journals my favorite journal in this country is Christian Order I've read it for the last six or seven years I never miss an issue my father Crane a marvelous Jesuit in London and I, we probably have uh, some copies of it here or something, but you can always, uh, I even have one copy, I can give you the address. And then Hamish Fraser's approaches to me is the finest work on the social doctrine of the church. I have been educated by Catholics my entire life. I've been a professor for 30 years. It was only six years ago that I began to understand the real social teaching of the church through Fraser and through my friend Dr. Rayo. So you people, I don't say you should read both. And I don't say everybody here should read either. But at least you should know someone who reads one. You should absolutely be in touch with the movement through people like that. There's this little thing called the Roman Chronicle uh, that is being put out by Joanna Bogle. And it's a real thin little thing. You can read it in three minutes. It's put, certain pastors have it, please find out about that. It's not that informative, it's too short, but it will still put you in touch. The Roman Chronicle. That's the secret. Sometimes audio is the easiest way to do it. If you are a busy person in the house or you have a lot of driving to do, you can't read, but you can put on an audio cassette while you're driving or peeling potatoes or cooking or doing the laundry or a hundred other house tasks and the person who brought me here in the first place is John Edwards here. He has Christus Vincit uh, CV, uh, uh, CV Productions. 
and he will have audio tapes of all these things, and you'll have order forms here. He learned all this from my group in New Jersey, Keep the Faith. We moved from 2,000 to 7,000 tapes a day all over the world, mostly in America. Many of the tapes from Archbishop Sheen, but I have something like 130 lectures now on tape. And you'd be surprised that this rallies the remnant all over. We, people, seminarians, nuns, priests, a few bishops, a few cardinals, know about us and appreciate us. And, and they're quite grateful that we are standing up. And this should be our thought that this entire thing must be done with great earnestness. It's not flippant. This is not camaraderie. But never in bitterness and never in defeatism that we Christians are characterized by Christian hope because we know God exists. We know God loves the church. God loves all of us. Also Christian joy because our faith is worth living for it's worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. And in my mind, it's the only thing worth living for, fighting for, and dying for. So therefore, keep the faith.